Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. With me today is Chris Wallace. Chris is the CEO, CIO, and Senior Portfolio Manager here at Von Nelson. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Dan. So thematically today, we're going to be speaking on, a, on the topic of efficiencies in the marketplace. In particular, what has created much of the inefficiencies over the recent years, uh, what is disrupt- disrupting the market, and what we can do and what we should be looking at as investors. Uh, Chris, we talk a little bit about some of the things that you're seeing today uh, on a macro scale that has really created some of this difficulty and, and, as I mentioned before, inefficiency in the marketplace. Yeah, you bet, Dan. You know, certainly the, the trend towards passive investing has been with us for a number of years. And really over the last three years, I think we've seen a fairly significant change in the impact that passive flows have had, either at the sector level or across the entire index. You know, just anecdotally, it would appear to me that the institutions began moving to passive more aggressively in 2014 and 2015, and really looks like they finished most of that allocation. But then retail, I think it's really been pushed into passive strategies with the, uh, with the introduction of the new DOL regulations. And, and that's a sizable set of assets. You're talking about several trillion dollars that has flowed into passive funds, uh, as well as just the increased use of ETFs by hedge funds in general. Uh, and it, it really has interrupted what I'd call fundamental price discovery. So what you're describing here is a, a scenario where it seems as though it's more of a one-time singular event where you see the bulk of assets. So once we get through the pensions, once uh, we get through some of these larger institutional mandates that get shifted, how do you see passive playing out as a residual trade? Yeah, sure. I, I think people are going to be pretty surprised. I think you're right uh, that the extra force or the extra influence on share prices is driven by the initial allocation, meaning the bulk of the assets moving into a passive index rather than just the ongoing incremental flows uh, going into an index at a higher rate than they have historically. Um, And the reason why that's going to be the case is, one, it's just going to be the evolution of demographics. Uh, You know, when the boomers were investing, there was $3 of buying power for every dollar of selling power. As we move over the next decade, that's going to flip, and there's going to be $3 of selling power for every dollar of buying power, kind of best-case scenario. Once that happens, you certainly will see the indices go into secular decline. There's no question about that. It's just a matter of math. I happen to think it could happen sooner than that because of what you were describing as this one-time in-mass flow. Once that's finished, you'll see active management have a much heavier influence in price discovery than just the general flows into an index fund. May I, I ask you to venture a guess on, on would you say, how far along or how far into this game are we now? Uh, like I said, from an institutional perspective, I really do think we're in the eighth or ninth inning. Uh, I think the incremental allocations that are happening for the large pensions are the result of money coming out of the alternative space or other managers where they're rationalizing the portfolio. And as that's redistributed, it obviously uh, garners somewhat of an allocation to the index funds. I think from the retail space, uh, mainly the advisor space, I think it's still relatively early, but I think we saw a, a fairly significant shift in 16. Now, how aggressive that plays out in 17 or 18 will really be dictated by how they implement the new DOL regulations. And, and how much of this would you describe is a residual effect of QE in, in the printing of money over the last few years? Yeah, there's no question that, you know, as we look around the world, there's always a bubble. There's always a great trade. 
Um, and the really the bubble we see today is in liquidity. And it is when when any central bank undergoes QE, those dollars either go into the asset prices in the capital markets or they go into the real economy. And for the most part, for the last several years, they've gone into asset prices. Uh, really kind of lends to kind of how we're positioning the portfolio today more towards a capital preservation mode more so than capital appreciation. So along this theme, I was reading an article the other day, and it described the small cap universe as roughly 7% of the investable universe out there uh, in the U.S., and last year's flow amounted to roughly 12% of flow into small cap. Uh, I can only imagine that this, <laughs> this grossly distorted asset prices. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no question it has, and that really is this kind of passive indexing effect. Uh, you know, there's been some corroborating data by third parties that would show that, you know, looking at median PEs or other measures, uh, the market's more expensive than it's ever been. It's certainly more expensive than it would have been uh, in, at the end of the late 90s after the tech bubble. Um, and on some measures, it's as expensive or more expensive than it was in 07. Um, I think more importantly, just, you know, setting aside what we're seeing with PE levels that are extremely high, uh, when you add on the fact that margins are extremely high as well and interest costs are extremely low and we're at a point where you're going to start to see a secular decline in profit margins, the market's probably a lot more expensive than people realize. Uh, and they're taking a lot more risk for very little reward when you're moving into an index. Um, now, as we said, these passive flows and implementation of the DOL can keep it elevated for uh, a little bit longer, but eventually, um, you know, price meets fundamentals, and it's just a question of when. Right. So we, we've done a bit of academic research here at the firm, looking at the IPO space, um, particularly the replenishment cycle as it exists, or the lack thereof, inside of small cap universe. Uh, as we're seeing fewer names enter the small cap space as an IPO, uh, you're seeing more names today uh, moving from small to mid, just as a result of the performance of the indices and the, uh, the, overall, uh, me, the overall asset price increases. Um, what is happening for you as an investor inside the small space, looking at a smaller number of investment capabilities or investment opportunities at the same time you're seeing increasing flow there? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's no question the universe is dramatically different than it was you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, some of that is because of the increase in passive investing, but more importantly, it's the structural changes you described, which is just fewer IPOs into the small cap space. Companies come public as mid cap entities. A lot of that is just the maturity in private equity that allows that growth capital um, to be achieved in the private market so they don't have to come public quite as early. Uh, we've seen a little bit of relief in the last 12 months where a lot of companies that were taken private by private equity are being released back into the public market. So that's helping somewhat, uh, but there's just no question there's there's fewer names. And, and that's played out not only in the small cap space, but through the entire market cap range with companies going private uh, or being acquired as well. There's just been very little kind of corporate formation for the last 10 years. So, so I, if I'm hearing you correctly, this tells me it sounds like we are setting ourselves up really clean for some type of an expectation of a, of a pullback. And, and the two ways the market can pull back, we see it as a, as a price correction, right, a, a period in time, or uh, you correct over time where essentially what we need to see happen is the earnings need to start to catch up with the pricing. 
what do you think of the of the two scenarios I just laid out? What is the more likely of the two, and how do you see it playing out? Yeah, you know, um, the only way I could see that earnings could catch up to valuation would be if we really got some uh, strong tax reform or significant adjustments in a corporate tax rate. Because when you look at the underlying kind of business models and you look at where the cost pressures and the opportunities to raise price, the opportunities to raise price are incredibly limited. And that's across industries. That's not unique to any one sector. But yet cost pressures are really building. There's just no question that wage, wage pressures are increasing. Competitive pressures are increasing. And companies are going to find it very difficult to continue to kind of maintain and expand margins. Uh, so I'm more in the camp that without corporate tax reform or other fiscal stimulus that would allow us to discount higher growth rates going forward, uh, we're going we're gonna to correct through price moving lower rather than earnings moving higher. Um, the catalyst for that will always be liquidity-driven. Um, we don't see anything on the horizon now that would indicate credit losses getting too far out of control that it would hamper liquidity. Certainly, we're seeing some losses build in the auto space. That's well documented. We've seen credit pullback from commercial real estate. Again, that, that's pretty well documented, but that's more of a normalization. So um, don't see a, a correction near term, but there's, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, price is probably at least 15 to 20 percent above fundamental value today. And I think a lot of that's still kind of pricing in hope of tax reform later in 2017, early 2018. And it's interesting to say that, you know, talk about pressures that you're seeing on, on pricing, on margins, on wage labor. You know, I, I saw or heard an interesting quote the other day talking about um, where, where people feel as though we're experiencing deflation on goods that you need and, unflate, and inflation on goods that you want, right? <laughs> so kind of an interesting take on, on what you're saying here. Um, all right, so as you're actually looking at structuring the portfolio now in, in small caps, so this is what, we're 18 years in. Uh, any sectors, I know it's not really what we do, it's very name-specific, but if you were to look at sectors, anything that's starting to catch your eye, that, that at that point you're going to drill down and try to find the, you know, the one or two best businesses that's inside there, something that you're going to see with a, tail, a tailwind to your head. Yeah, we have, um, and speaking more to sectors, you know, the, really the only sector bet we have on right now is we're still positioned for a bullish outcome for oil prices. Um, and that kind of plays its way through the portfolio. And I, and I do think that's an area that the market may be um, underappreciating the potential for real upward movement in oil prices. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, what I call one-off inventory builds in some of the North American data over the last few months, which has made people uh, form a thesis that North American onshore production is actually increasing dramatically in OPEC's compliance uh, isn't up to up to par, and I don't think that's true. I think what we're seeing now uh, was some temporary increases in North American uh, inventories. Those will start drawing down. I think if we maintain kind of these current price levels, uh, we're setting ourselves up for a really tight supply demand imbalances in the back half of 17 and 18, and that may necessitate oil moving up to 70 in order for us to average 60, which is probably where it needs to be. Uh, so borrowing any real fall off in demand, um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty bullish on, on oil prices. Uh, that being said, you know, we're fairly targeted. Uh, it's not going to be good for every energy company. Uh, and one of the best ways to play it is to avoid the entities it's going to hurt. I know there's a, a lot of uh, smart people invested in the airline space. Uh, you know, we're staying away from that. We're staying away from trucking. We're staying away 
uh, from the consumer space uh, more broadly. Um, so it's areas to avoid, as I mentioned earlier. I, I think there's very little margin for error. So uh, avoiding losses may be the way you make money for the next uh, uh, few quarters rather than really trying to go out and just earn outright uh, strong appreciation. And, and maybe one other sector we could touch on. Uh, how about a, a, a little intel on healthcare? Uh, could you touch on that, please, as, as a firm? Uh, we're, yeah. We're still a little bit overweight. Yeah, we're still a little overweight healthcare. You know, healthcare is pretty broad-based. Uh, and I think what's important is, you know, we're clearly going through structural shifts in healthcare. Uh, a lot of it driven by regulation, but for the most part, the incremental pressures that I'm seeing are driven by market forces looking to solve the issues of reducing the cost of providing care. Um, and so we try to gear the portfolios to those areas, uh, either to entities that are taking costs out of the system or providing the tools needed for other healthcare providers to take costs out of the system, or to maybe equipment providers that uh, aren't as heavily focused on the North American market where it's more mature, they may be starting to gain share or uh, build their businesses overseas where it's just a very different dynamic. That's great. Um, just one last thing, parting shots, anything we th- you, you'd suggest investors keep an eye out for today, anything that they should be expecting uh, coming down the pipe here? Yeah, I actually think they really need to pay attention to what's going on with the federal uh, deficits and the federal budgets. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of hope out there that, oh, we can just move beyond the Affordable Care Act since it's going to be so difficult to address and move on to tax policy. And realistically, that's not the case. Uh, if we don't come to some conclusion on health care reform, we're not going to be able to get any meaningful tax reform. We're just now moving into a period of time where structural deficits are really going to start to pressure markets at a time when foreign buyers have kind of backed away from the U.S. Treasury market. So there's going to be more funding by um, domestic entities themselves. And so you can't really have health care reform uh, or meaningful tax reform without health care reform, uh, the best we could hope for would just be a cut in corporate tax rates, which would be sufficient for the market, but not really for the structural change we need to, to move GDP higher. Uh, so I, I do think, you know, unfortunately, this administration's got its hands tied as far as being able to implement fiscal policy uh, without getting, you know, both parties on board. Now, that's great. Well, thank you as always for your insight. Uh, very much appreciate sitting down with us today. Uh, if any listeners out there have any questions or topics you'd like for us to discuss, uh, p- please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can email me at dhughes at vonnelson.com. Uh, and thank you. We look forward to hearing from you next time. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Chris Wallace and Dan Hughes of Vaughn Nelson Investment Management as of April 17, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. 
Provided by NGAM Distribution, LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. Compliance Code 17835951. Job Pod 780517. Expires 131-2018.